Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W.A.B. in Atlanta. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The Hugo Awards date back to the early 1950s and are presented in connection with the World Science Fiction Convention. Winners are declared in a variety of categories, including Best Science Fiction Novel, Best Comic, Best Series, Best Fanzine, and Best Fancast. Cast, as in podcast. Hugo Girl, an Atlanta-based fancast, is one of this year's nominees. Ahead of their trip to the awards ceremony, the creatives behind You Go Girl joined City Light senior producer Kim Drobes, our resident sci-fi maven and expert on all things fantasy-related. We'll hear Kim with the women behind You Go Girl later this hour. First, everyone's journey to self-acceptance is different some people undergo therapy or write daily in a journal. Others try exciting new activities. If you are Neil Brennan, you create a stand-up comedy show. Brilliantly. The comedian, writer, and director has written for Chappelle's show, The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, and the movie Half-Baked. He's on tour now for his stand-up show, Unacceptable, in which he unflinchingly explores his attitudes and behaviors with wit and honesty. Ahead of his Atlanta performance at Variety Playhouse on July 16th, Neil Brennan joins me now via Zoom. Neil, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you for having me. The last time we spoke was in 2018 during your Here We Go comedy tour, and we also talked about your Three Mics Netflix comedy special. How does Unacceptable pick up from where Here We Go left off? It actually kind of picks up where Three Mics left off. Here We Go was more just like not silly, but kind of lighter stand up. 
this is more, you know, I had all these jokes and I was sort of, you, I write material in small chunks. Like in, I live in LA and we do 15 minute sets more or less every night. And so you, you're building out sections of your act kind of piecemeal. And then eventually I looked at it and uh, I was like, what am I getting at? And what I realized I was getting at was that I feel kind of defensive about my life, right? I would say lifestyle, but that implies something else that I, that I don't want. Because it's not even that controversial a lifestyle. It's just the choice I make where I'm not married. I don't have kids. I don't really drink. I don't really smoke weed. I don't eat meat. I don't, I have a bunch of things that I just don't do that most people do do. I'm racially bilingual, I would say like, so I have all of these kind of, I'm an outlier in like 10 different ways. And it made me realize, I just realized like, oh, I feel like isolated a lot of the time and kind of unacceptable, if you will. And I wanted to write sort of a themed show around that. So that's sort of the, that was kind of the impetus. Yeah, unacceptable pokes fun at personal awkwardness and alienation, most of all your own. You mentioned being an outlier. Would you describe your role or your feelings as an outsider? Yeah, I mean, I don't, there aren't very many groups that I feel like I'm a part of. And there's the old, like, Groucho Marx thing of, like, I wouldn't be a part of any club that had me as a member. I disagree. I would like to be in the club. <laughs> I don't think I'd go often, but I definitely want to be invited to be in the club because <laughs> I feel like, I don't know, I don't like being rejected or denied or whatever. Like, I just, it feels, it doesn't feel good. Feels It feels bad to be an outlier. You would say, some would say like, that's the cost of being an original person or having an original life. Yes, but it's still taxing personally, feeling like I'm, I'm just different in every way. I mean, that's the, I tied into COVID a little bit where people had a lot of mental health problems because when we're isolated, like we were during COVID, your, your body doesn't know why you're isolated. Your body just knows you're isolated and assumes it's your fault. Right. And I mean, it's why solitary confinement is like a human rights abuse uh, considered by a lot of NGOs to, you know, because it's like, we don't do well alone. You know, we need interdependence. So, Well, I know you've received thanks and feedback from people about difficult topics such as these that you address in your stand-up. Why is this show especially relatable? You know, what's funny is I talk a lot about not being married, not having kids. And I'm talking to women. I never explicitly say that, but it's women bear the most, women are judged the most for not being married, not having kids past a certain age, right? Uh, and by the by a certain age in the South, I believe it's 23. <laughs> no, but by a certain age, if you're not married with kids, it's like you're, you failed in some way. And I'm trying to explain to people like, this is not a failure. This is just, a choice and a lot of it comes down to luck there's a stat in the show where i say is one in eight chance that you'll marry a person you're dating there's a 50 50 chance that the marriage will work so 
there's a 6% chance that you'll be in an everlasting love and relationship with someone you're dating, even if they're great and you're great. That's luck to me. What I've just described is luck. So, but we judge each other like it's like it's skill and like it's talent. And you've got, you know, I say we're all fans at an NBA game taking a half court shot. Wow. You know, people, when those people miss the shot, people go, oh, they don't go, screw you. What's wrong with you? You know? So we have no empathy for each other and no empathy for each other's choices. So, or the difficulty of doing this stuff, you know? Neil, one of the things that was especially funny and provocative when my family and I attended your show at Variety in 2018 is you talked about our dogs as pets being yes, slaves. Yes, no, that's actually the opening joke in this show. I still had it left over. I have it left. I, there's like two jokes. That's one of them. About being slaves. Like, well, they're captives. They're not. My dog is literally trying to get out as we speak. <laughs> like they are our captives. And people go, oh, I'm a dog mom. You know who else is a dog mom? That dog's mom. You're, you're, a, you're, a, you're a captor. Okay, so we looked at Rex every now and then, and my son would say, you realize he's your son. No, he, no, he rules this household, and not according to Neil. No. And then I saw that you do not put Keith, your dog, on your Christmas card. I don't. I Well, I don't have a Christmas card, but I don't, he's not in any of my uh, corporate communications. He's just not, he's my, he's my, like, we're like roommates. Oh, come on. That's my relationship with Keith. But again, that's enough. People hate me for that. I don't hate you. I'm just mystified. No, no, I know. But there are people where I'm like, well, you're mystified. I don't even like that. So to me, I hate you. I mean, I'm an approval addict, Lois. I don't. Me too. Mystification, I read, reads as hate to me. Oh, so, yeah, okay. like I, that's one of the most controversial things I've said in the show sometimes. People are like, you don't love your dog. I'm like, I like them, but I'm also aware of what the relationship is. Okay. Okay. And, oh, Neil, you can tell I'm an approval addict. A million apologies for slighting you <laughs> with that, you know? I gotcha. I turned your, I turned it on you. I just thought it was funny. It was very funny because I'm sure he's a wonderful roommate. He is. Yeah. Okay. This show was originally slated for a six-week run in New York City at the Cherry Lane Theater. And then I read due to popular demand, it was extended for two more months and eventually hit the road for a nationwide tour that we'll get to see in Atlanta. Were you surprised at the strength of the response to this show? You know, the thing about doing a broad, an off-Broadway show is it's just, it's a lot of promotion, meaning you just have to, you say that, that like what you've just said, like, oh yeah, it is popular and 13,000 people, 12, 13,000 people came to see it. But I felt like I squeezed every one of those people to come to the show, whether, I mean, it was, I felt like I was in constant press tour and constant, like sort of trying to encourage people on the street, like, hey man, what are you doing in New York? I'm like, I'm doing a show, come see it. Uh, go to neilbrenner.com or whatever. Like it was, it feels like you're running for office. So yeah, so I was grateful that that people came. I, anytime someone comes see me live, I'm like, 
what do you need? Like, I'm very appreciative because anyone can watch it on a streaming platform, but I need people to come see it in person with their family, Lois, like you did. Oh, you just made up for that <laughs> earlier great. remark. Yeah, yeah, great. Thank you. You are welcome. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights, speaking with comedian Neil Brennan. Everything about being white, you got to admit it, we got tattletale in our DNA. <laughs> we got snitch in our blood, white people. I'll be in a nightclub with my black friends. It'll be packed. Everybody's drinking, dancing, laughing, having a great time. I'm trying to fit in like... There must be 350 people in here right now. I wonder what the fire marshal would have to say about that. White people love the rules so much that we will go on police ride-alongs for fun. Have any idea how white that is? You ever try to explain that to black people? Like, yeah, I call the precinct. I say, hey, this is Neil. I'm white, and I like to go for a ride-along. They send over a squad car. I get in the back seat, which is fun for me, because what other opportunity would I have to do that? <laughs> but there's a price to pay white people for loving the rules as much as we do. We can't sleep. Never, I've never met a black insomniac in my entire life. <laughs> Meanwhile, every white person I know has sleep issues. You know why? Because we're up tossing and turning every night thinking about who broke the rules that day. <laughs> he doesn't think I saw him, but oh yeah, I saw you, Chet. <laughs> and guess what? Tomorrow I'm telling. <laughs> you know when I'm telling? White people's favorite time of day. First thing in the morning. Unacceptable has its own kind of organizing principle using several props on stage. Neil, how does this allow you to keep an audience's attention while also helping to set up or drive home a point in a punchline? Uh, the props part I may or may not be doing in Atlanta, like it, it can be a little cumbersome ah. and depending on, but it's not, you're not going to miss it. But I do a thing in the, I did it in New York and I'll do it when it streams, where there's shapes behind me. Basically a friend of mine made, I asked my friend to make a backdrop and she made a backdrop of just a bunch of shapes sort of based on the themes of the show. And then I'm kind of, and she's like, you'll figure out how to put them on the wall. And I'm like, what are you talking about? So I'm just trying to negotiate that as I'm doing the show chances are I'm not going to do it that way in Atlanta just because it's it's like I have to bring it ship a wall and just like it's a whole thing but it is basically like you're in the Atlanta show you'll see me trying to understand my existence you know my like what is this life why am I like this what are what am I how should I experience this and what am I supposed to make of it you know, so ex existential comedy, which which you've sort of coined, tromedy. Tromedy, yeah, stand up tromedy, yeah, yeah, yeah. I so love I it. I say it in subject anyway because it's it's kind of a silly turn of phrase, and it's not exactly trauma in this one. No. It's just more the the loneliness, the isolation. 
You are a writer and creative consultant on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. Love it. With the madness, the vitriol of today's socio-political climate, how do you find humor? I understand how you find irony, but how do you continue to find humor? You know, when people use the term like gallows humor, that always seems redundant to me because I think that's the the essence of humor to begin with. It's like <laughs> whistling past the graveyard, as they say. So that's sort of, you know, with Roe v. Wade, it's like, I don't, I mean, I think it should be legal. Now that Roe v. Wade's been overturned, it should be legal to slap anyone who says it doesn't matter who you vote for. They should legalize that. Because it's so clearly, it was always wrong. And it's like, yo, you were so wrong about that. It really matters who you vote for. And, I, you know, I, re Republicans are not messing around. And it seems like liberals never understood that. It, Bill Maher certainly has been driving that home lately. Yeah, he's been driving it home. I mean, he was the one who said Trump's not leaving office. And he was absolutely right. Okay. Mort Saul said it in an interview, you know, a long time ago. So should we feel encouraged from that? Encouraged? I mean, the only solace I take is that I think people really understand that their vote matters. That's it. I mean, that's they will understand more between Trump being elected and because people are like, you know, screw Hillary or, you know, it's like, all right, so is that better than, it's this childish notion that like, well, I don't like Hillary, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna spite her and vote for this monster or whatever, it, whatever side of the aisle you're on. Your vote matters. Your vote absolutely matters. And we lived in sort of a, a time where it didn't, it kind of didn't seem like it mattered for 20, 30 years. And like, meaning it wasn't gonna affect your life day to day, you know? And now your life's going to be very affected. Now you see like, oh, I understand now. So that is upbeat, if that's the takeaway from a miserable situation. Yeah, now, the, unfortunately, it's going to be 40 years. It's going to be 40 years, I mean, because of the youth of Amy Coney Barrett and, and the other justices. You have been co-producing and writing for Chappelle's show with Dave Chappelle since its beginning. And its end. Yeah. Though your friendship and working relationship with him go back way before that with the two of you co-writing the stoner cult comedy Half-Baked in 1998, would you talk about your friendship with Dave Chappelle and how your careers grew together? Uh, they grew together because he helped me. He gave me opportunities that I wouldn't have otherwise gotten in uh, notably Half-Baked. And then the TV show, we, he knew we worked well together. So I think I was his first and only choice, I would think. But yeah, you know, I've known him since 1992. So known him 30 years now. And since we were both 18 or, yeah, 18. You know, he's just got a, a world-class, one-in-a-billion mind. And he's just, like, insanely talented and smart. And 
funny as like you know chris rock one time said like you don't you're not competitive with dave and i'm like well i would if i thought i could win (laughs) i actually am competitive with him like he would laugh at saying i'm not he once said i'm the most competitive person he's ever met and i said that's because you you can't meet yourself we have a we have an ongoing joke which is i want his last words on earth to be neil was right and vice versa it's like an ongoing argument i mean he refers to Chappelle show as fifty thousand arguments to make 40 sketches my goodness what a beautiful way of putting it when he told you you're so competitive or you compete with him and and you said that's because you haven't met yourself impossible to meet yourself can't beautiful still, still can't be done it's so rare or at least it seems rare for a white comedian to navigate the subject of race as sensitively as you do of course i would think it helps that you work with dave who does this remarkably when tackling the topic Neil, I'm curious about how you position yourself in the conversation. How do you keep yourself honest in terms of racial literacy while knowing when and where to poke fun? You know, it's a great question. I mean, I think in some ways I've like studied at the Dave Chappelle Institute and I've studied at the Chris Rock Institute. Like, I'm very lucky that I'm very close with both of them. And, you know, it's basically a story of colonialism in America, and especially Black people's experience in America. It's colonialism crossed with kidnapping, right? It's like, I try to approach it. And again, I fail a lot. Like, I've made, you know, giant miscalculations or 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 mistakes in regards to talking about in public but the basic idea is that it's it's colonialism and dealing with the and like the emotional impact of you know slavery and jim crow i think that's the the a thing that i'm if i if there is anything that may differentiate me it's like i'm encouraging the mental health aspect of of what that must be like to experience to have experienced you know like slavery and then jim crow chris rock said something to me about jim crow that's like indelible and this is one of these things that's like he's never said it publicly he said you know i understand slavery like just like yeah it's just like brutal like hey you come work for me he's like but jim crow is just sadistic and it's like, what are you doing? What? I can't, the same water fountain. Like, so I, I'm lucky to have, you know, friendships where they'll say something like that, you know, and I'll get insight that I would, I would never get otherwise. And you have empathy. Of course, of course. Well, not everybody does, hence slavery and Jim Crow. Well, yes, uh, but there's a big, there's a big, gap between Jim Crow and slavery on the one hand and like minimal empathy. <laughs> you know, it's like I have empathy and I'm still funny. So I'm still funny. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. It's like they, you don't want like a whimpering like, oh, honey. You know, it's like we still make jokes about all this stuff, but it's that gallows humor thing. You know? Yep. 
That's a funny one. You've been involved in many pivotal moments in comedy, some of the most watched shows of the last two decades or more. Neil, you are a part of an ongoing, far-reaching cultural conversation. Think about that in your isolation. <laughs> Please, quote me. I picture you yelling that down into my cell, in my holding cell, where I'm in my isolation. I'll record yeah. it for Thank you. you. Please. Press play. Yeah. Do you feel like you have an evolving approach to reading the world's temperature on what's funny, uh, what isn't, and how to speak to it? I mean, come on, you've, you're talented. Now face that part. It's not something I think about very much. Like, it's not something where I go, oh, I should talk about that or I shouldn't talk about that. I mean, a lot of my jokes are empathetic, and then a lot of my jokes are empathetic to someone who has no empathy. Do you, if, does that make sense? Like, like I can relate to the victim and the perpetrator. Like I did a joke, I just posted on Instagram. I mean, it's 10 years old, but I have obviously a lot of empathy for slavery. And then I do a joke about how scared white people must've been on the last day of slavery. So like, it's absurd, it's silly. It's like, hey, slave, can I get all, see all the slaves in the front? Thanks for your help with all the chores. You know, like this absurdist take on things. So like, do, am I identifying with the aggressor? Not exactly, but I see the comedic possibilities of the tension. And we know where you stand so you can do it. Yes, I'm staunchly anti-slavery and I've been clear <laughs> on that from the beginning. From pretty much from birth, I've been against it. Comedian Neil Brennan. He'll perform his new stand-up show, Unacceptable, at Variety Playhouse on July 16th, Saturday. More information is on our website at wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, the Atlanta creatives behind the You Go Girl podcast discuss science fiction with a feminist lens. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. If you are a fan of science fiction, you've likely heard of the Hugo Awards. Dating back to the early 1950s, 
The awards are presented in connection with the World Science Fiction Convention, and winners are declared in a variety of categories, including Best Science Fiction Novel, Best Comic, Best Series, Best Fanzine, and Best Fancast. Cast, as in podcast. You Go Girl, an Atlanta-based fan cast, is one of this year's nominees. And ahead of their trip to the awards ceremony, the creatives behind You Go Girl recently joined City Light senior producer Kim Drobes via Zoom. When Kim spoke with the podcast hosts, Haley Zapel, Amy Sally, and Laurie Anderson, along with their producer, Kevin Anderson, Zapel began with the origin story of the podcast's name. So it started about a decade ago. I was unemployed for a couple of months, and I was trying to think of ways to fill my time. And I had always loved science fiction, and I was like, what if I read all these books? And this was back when well, now everybody has a podcast, but back then everybody had a blog. So I was like, I'm going to start a blog. I'm going to call it something clever. So I was like, Hugo girl. And uh, <laughs> I never really got around to it because I got a job fairly quickly, but the wow. name was always bouncing around in my head. And so when we had the opportunity to create a podcast, I was like, here's the name. So Lori, in general, how does the bulk of the science fiction that you guys cover hold up to what we would consider today's feminist standards? And do you tend to find recurring problematic themes? Uh, not great in many instances to answer your <laughs> first question. And uh, yes, to answer your second question, we frequently see, I would say two main things. Number one is a complete absence of women in early and not even so early, even uh, what we would consider relatively recent works of science fiction. There maybe there's one female character, she's a girlfriend, a sidekick, just almost kind of a, a, a blank um, or someone for the hero of the story to sort of play off of. Or in many cases, we just don't see any women at all. They might be mentioned as part of the background, but they're actually no female characters or female characters that don't have any sort of speaking role. So we see both of those actually fairly frequently and even in more recent works as well. Hugo Girl follows a solid structure and close to the start of each episode is a general summary of the book that you're going to be discussing. And it is so far from being spoiler free. So Amy, I was wondering who do you believe your current audience is? Are you aiming for people who have already read the books that you discuss? Yeah, I think typically we're going into these episodes without worrying too much about spoilers and assuming the people have read the book. Although I will say that I've heard from, you know, several listeners that it doesn't really matter <laughs> if they've read the book. There's usually something that is entertaining in the episodes. But yes, I think that in general, these podcasts are intended for people who have read the book and are looking to get a little more in depth with the interpretation. That makes sense. And as far as a book that many of us have read, Dune, one of the most popular science fiction books of all time and has been made a movie multiple times, I want to play a quick clip from your Dune episode. Okay, so I agree that it's not to push aside. I will read The Litany Against Fear. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death. 
that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will reign. As my therapist says, you have to feel your feelings. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think, I think you can feel fear, but you just can't give in to it. You don't want to make choices based solely on fear. I, I think. think I would prefer to retitle it the consultation of fear. <laughs> yeah. Let's check yeah, in with yeah. our fear, see yeah. what it's alerting us to, have a look around, and then we can let it pass over us after we've had a chat and figured out what it's telling us we need to know. Yeah, I'm down with that. Haley, was that you reading that quote? It was. So the litany of fear is a big part of Dune. It's a very big part of why I actually like Dune. Um, it's about learning how to control negative emotions, specifically fear. And as an anxious person, you know, especially in the last few years filled with political turmoil and a global pandemic, I find it very comforting. And in this clip, after I recite it, uh, Amy and Lori add thoughts to help give it even more nuance, um, which I thought was super cool. Well, after listening to a few of your more recent episodes, I stumbled across your Hugo adjacent episode about the HBO series Station Eleven, a series that I particularly liked. And Haley, I think you and I might be alone in that within this group. Kevin, you are featured prominently on this episode, and I'm pretty sure you have a different opinion than I do on this one. And I was wondering what led you and the team to want to go sideways to discuss not the book Station Eleven, but the HBO adaptation. Actually, there, there had been an earlier episode on the book. So this was kind of a follow-up and, uh, and contrast and, and comparison and... Yeah, I'm, I'm normally not on the episodes, uh, but I, I watched the series along with Lori, so we figured I might as well just jump on and, and it would be fun. I think it ended up adding a little bit of conflict. You know, really, I really liked the book. Um, so for me, it was kind of more a disappointment in the in the adaptation, I think. But yeah, it makes for, makes for interesting listening to have uh, have different opinions, I think. Absolutely. Was that the first time that you guys took on an adaptation of a book? This is Amy. I can answer that. We've done an episode on the Dune movie, the most recent Dune movie as well. And we had an episode on the first Lord of the Rings movie. And we've done other types of works as well. We have a double episode on a cookbook um, (laughs) and a couple of other things that are sort of Hugo adjacent, most notably our forays into Moby Dick and the Dan Simmons' book, The Terror. Well, Amy, since you mentioned Lord of the Rings, I had read that your gang tends to refer to you as a general fantasy apologist. Why do you think that is? (laughs) Well, I think of everybody in the group, I'm probably the most into, (laughs) you know, swords and sorcery fantasy. Um, I think this podcast mostly started out as an appreciation for sci-fi but as we have taught Haley with her love for Star Wars even science fiction can be fantasy Um, and so I think I'm slowly winning everybody over. (laughs) Well I had heard you guys did an April Fool's episode that was Lord of the Rings based. Does anybody want to jump on and set up that episode for us? We have a clip from it I'd love to play. This is Lori. So we um, really wanted to get Haley some exposure to Lord of the Rings. And this was definitely when true crime was certainly super popular. Um, Amy and I both listened to true crime podcasts and Haley had the very funny idea to call to say my favorite Mordor as kind of a pun on the popular true crime podcast, my favorite murder. 
And <laughs> running with that, we decided to look at Lord of the Rings uh, from a true crime lens. And so we did our podcast sort of in the style of a true crime podcast. So we characterized it as a famous jewelry heist that had kind of permeated the popular imagination. And we did the whole episode in character as true crime podcasters and uh, as though they were historical events. And it was really a lot of fun and our audience seemed to really enjoy it. Here's Amy, Lori, and Haley from the Hugo Girl podcast discussing Lord of the Rings for their April Fool's Day episode. All right, we have this group of thieves, the Fellowship of the Ring. It is very Hobbit heavy. It's it like, is very Hobbit. It's heavy. like half Hobbits. Yeah, um, that's true. I mean, they were the ringleaders, if you if 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 you will. Ah, ah, ah. <laughs> uh, I would I would debate that because I feel like Mary and Poppins don't really bring a lot to this. Mary and Poppins. <laughs> I mean, whatever his name is, Pepin, Pe- Pe- Pepper. I don't know. His Pippin. name is Pippin. <laughs> whatever. Uh, Peregrine. If you really want to be angry. Mary <laughs> I mean, they're they're. I'm assuming they're the comic relief. Okay, so part of why this is so funny is because even though it's framed as a true crime episode, I had just watched the movie and I had so many questions <laughs> and, you know, there's errors and I'm kind of like snarky about it. And, you know, Amy is like truly like knows everything about Lord of the Rings. And so when I made that little s- slip up, it was just hilarious. I'm just continuously, <laughs> this is Amy, I'm sorry. I'm just continuously amused by how much Haley hates hobbits. It will never not be funny to me. Is it, is it the second breakfast? It's, what is it? Uh, you know, this is a very good question that I have had for her myself. So it is, it is the hairy feet. It is the bad oh. haircuts. Well. It's, it's the language. I don't know. I'm, I'm just a hobbit hater. It's just part of my personality. I mean, the hairy feet and the bad haircuts is a really good start. If you're just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, and my guests are the creatives behind the Hugo Girl podcast, The Atlanta-based fan cast was recently nominated for their very own Hugo Award. May I ask how you guys all met? Yeah, I think I am kind of in the middle. So I met Lori in law school in our third year of law school, and then we became very quick friends, and I've been friends for over a decade now. And I met Amy uh, when I moved to Atlanta, although we had all attended UGA law school. Um, Amy was a little bit earlier than we were, and Amy's also from the same hometown as me, Savannah, Georgia. And then we all started hanging out together and just thick as thieves. Who came up with the idea for the podcast? I think that started with me and Haley. This is Amy. I believe that started with me and Haley. And then once we started talking about it and it seemed like something we were actually going to do in earnest, we were like, well, obviously we need to bring Lori in. And then <laughs> thank goodness. Obviously. And, thanks, and thank goodness Lori is married to someone who's really into um, sound and editing. <laughs> so. Well, speaking of Kevin, what's the most challenging part of editing the Hugo Girl podcast for you? You know, not much really. I try to keep it kind of, you know, light and conversational. And so, you you know, you can feel that uh, camaraderie come through. I don't really listen to podcasts. Uh, so when they asked me to edit it, my first thought was, well, I don't know what this should sound like. Um, <laughs> but then I realized that that's also good because I'm not really, you know, beholden to any expectations of what a podcast should sound like. So I just try to keep it light and fun. This is Lori. And of course, Kevin and I are, Kevin and I are married. And so as the person who is often sitting on the couch next to him, as he edits, I would say that the most challenging part of editing us is that we uh, tend to all talk at once. So Kevin kind of having to Mm. unbraid that crosstalk is uh, definitely challenging and something that we appreciate him for working on so patiently. 
Well, thank you. And this is Amy. Lori won't mention it, but I'll also tell you that Kevin is ruthless. He'll cut out things that he doesn't think people are interested in hearing. <laughs> I mean, that's what a good editor does, right? <laughs> this is Lori. That is absolutely true. When he was editing our first episode, the thing I always think of is I spent a few minutes musing about whether the first time I read Ender's Game was in the ninth grade or the 10th grade. And I distinctly remember Kevin saying, nobody cares what grade you were in when you read Ender's Game and just hitting the delete button on the segment. <laughs> it wasn't that bad. <laughs> You have several benchmark segments. Some of the noteworthy ones, you have the misogynist moment, you have a feminist favorite, fantastical food, Star Wars or Lord of the Rings. So for each of you, tell me which segment's your favorite and why. Oh, a hundred. This is Amy. 100%. My favorite segment is boob talk. And I hope I can say that on NPR. I hope you can too. <laughs> One of the things that we talk about a lot in our podcast is how the male gaze factors into what's happening in the book. So if there are books that have female characters, are we evaluating them on their looks before we learn anything about them as a character? As we go along in the book, is there a lot of emphasis put on their bodies? Is it appropriate? Is it not? So that's all kind of covered in our boob talk segment. And I think that is frankly where we shine. <laughs> Lori, what about you? Well, I guess I can't give the same answer as Amy. Um, that is probably the most <laughs> fun one. Um, but I do really enjoy the feminist favorite segment because I think sometimes there are things in books that are almost unintentionally feminist. And so I like looking for those little nuggets and finding moments that really speak to me as a, a woman and reader that maybe the author didn't even really realize they were doing. And I, I do think sometimes some authors kind of step backwards into <laughs> doing something that's a little accidentally feminist. So I like reading for those moments because I think it makes me a better and closer reader to, to look for those little nuggets and pick them out for the show. Haley, what about you? I love, is it Star Wars or Lord of the Rings? So Hugo award-winning books tend to be more sci-fi or more fantasy. And we've kind of turned it into our own little, basically little mini legal case. For me personally, if I don't like a book, I'll try to make it into Lord of the Rings, even if it's not like Lord of the Rings, just because I don't like Lord of the Rings. <laughs> but we'll have objections. We'll have, you know, cross-examinations of each other. Um, the most recent episode we did was on the Terror, which is a supernatural horror book based on the Franklin Expedition. And I decided that it was Star Wars because it's in the snowy Arctic. So I was like, well, this is obviously Hoth from Empire Strikes Back. There's a monster that's <laughs> like a wampa. But there was other arguments to be made. I think uh, Amy said that it was Lord of the Rings, which, you know, honestly. Correction. Tracks, so. Amy said it was Star Trek. <laughs> this is Lori. The fun thing about that category is there are really... No rules, no metrics. It's just sort of whatever we feel like uh, shouting at each other in the moment. So anything goes. It could be Star Trek, even though that nobody asked if it was Star Trek. And Kevin, what about you? Um, I, I don't know if it's the most fun, but I like that there's a did you like this book segment at the end, which was not an, an original uh, segment. But I think we realized over time that there are a lot of books that were enjoyable and good to read, but still had issues or problems or things you could nitpick. And when you spend, you know, an hour going over all these issues, it makes it seem like it's a terrible book. So kind of mm -hmm. recentering it on despite all of these issues, did you still enjoy this? I, I think that's important. Absolutely. One of the things that I thought was interesting was that a good percentage of your audience is male, which I think is 
Wonderful. Can you tell me a little more about your followers and the people who have helped you along the way? Yeah, this is Amy. We actually are constantly discussing how we managed to find all of the nice men on the internet. (laughs) We have Mm -hmm. a really wonderful group of people that we interact with. And we have been very lucky to be supported from almost the very beginning by especially Seth at the podcast Hugo's there. He was very instrumental in helping us sort of get our little podcast out to the world. And the folks over at Androids and Assets, another science fiction podcast, they were very helpful in getting our name out. And we've all sort of been on each other's podcasts and and we're very, very grateful to them and all of their help. Fantastic. Congratulations on being nominated for the Hugo Award. Have any of y'all ever attended the ceremony before? Yes, this is Lori. Kevin and I attended in person last year. We went just to go and have fun. So it's normally in August or September each year and hosted in a different city. Um, Because of COVID, they were hoping to be able to do it in person. And so it was pushed back to December and they were able to hold it in person and it was in DC. So we figured um, it was pretty close to us. Wouldn't be too much of an ordeal for us to travel there. Um, And we are big fans and attendees of Dragon Con. So with it being moved to December, it didn't conflict with Dragon Con as it often would. It was so nice meeting people. Um, Really fun to meet uh, members of the Hugo community that we've gotten to know over social media over the past couple of years. So we are super excited to be going back this year. And of course, especially to be going back as finalists. Hey, Lisa Sable, Amy, Sally, Lori Anderson, and Kevin Anderson. From the Atlanta-based Hugo Girl podcast, they've recently been nominated for a Hugo Award in the Best Fancast category, and more information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, our series of local musicians in their own words, speaking of music, today featuring Kendall Keeling. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for joining me. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of Music, where we get to hear from Atlanta musicians in their own words. Hi, my name is Kendall Keeling, and I would describe my music as power pop for the most part. I'm a songwriter and singer, but I also play a late 70s micro moog synthesizer in many of my songs. I've always been a huge music fan ever since I was a kid. Uh, I worked in a record store for 10 years as a teenager. And in the early 90s, several of my girlfriends decided that we should start a band. All of our significant others were in bands and we thought it would be really fun. And it was. Uh, That band was Nancy Drew Blood. And it was me as a lead singer, uh, Shelley Moore on drums, Laurie Seegers Morrison on guitar, and Kim Cresswell on bass. 
A few years later, that band morphed into the Velvet Overkill Five. Uh, we added Andy Hughes on drums and Jay Schlesinger on lead guitar. And when Jay and Andy moved to Costa Rica eventually, we swapped them out for John Mullins and Jack Massey from the Storm Orphans. Uh, we also had a drummer uh, named Jim Chambers who was playing with us, and we played shows around Atlanta and released uh, a CD before disbanding in, I think, 1997. I co-write with a friend of mine, Jeffrey, sometimes, so it it may be an idea or a theme that comes from a collaboration. I really like to write about dark subjects most of the time. I'm also a huge horror fan. So that definitely plays into the lyrics and the tone of the music that I create. I included my most recent project called Inside. I wrote the lyrics for my friend Jeffrey to sing. After he did his version, I decided to write my own music to go with it, and it kind of sat on the shelf for a while. Um, when the pandemic hit, the drummer for one of my favorite bands, Failure, offered to record drum tracks for anyone who had a song since he couldn't tour at the time. That really set me off, and I invited my former bandmate Lori to help me fill out the song with Kelly Scott's drum tracks. And my husband and her husband both played guitar on the track, with some other friends pitching in as well. I named the band for this project Cement Scabies, which is um, from a line in a German horror film that I like. song that I included is from the Velvet Overkill 5 and I feel like it's really probably the best representation of the music that we created as a band. I've always lived in Atlanta. I'm actually a third generation Atlantan. When I was younger, my brother was in bands when I was growing up, and one of his bands was featured on the Georgia Music Show in probably 1980 or 81. I started listening to and recording every single one of those shows as soon as I heard it, and I was about 15 at the time, but I found ways to get out and see the bands that I was hearing on WRAS. My whole existence at the time was about music. You know, going to 688, going to weekends, 
working at Turtles Records. Uh, it was really amazing. Um, I ended up marrying a local guitar player named Steve Beach. Uh, so I would say Atlanta has definitely influenced my music. My next project will likely be a collaboration with my husband Steve, but we're just getting started on that. So in terms of promoting the music, I would direct anyone who's interested in exploring it to Bandcamp. All of my projects are under the name The Velvet Overkill 5. So that would be the new song Inside, all of the VO5 recordings, which there's only a couple, but the CD as well as us uh, live performance at REK and then um, Nancy Drew Blood's album is on there as well. Atlanta musician Kendall Keeling and our series Speaking of Music. More information about Keeling and her music is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear about Lizzie from Actors Express and learn what happens when a true crime story becomes a rock and roll musical. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website wabe.org slash city lights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Summer Evans is our producer and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.